You pick up your Bible and wonder, is there more here than meets the eye? Is there something here for me? I mean, it's just words printed on paper, right? Well, it may look like just print on a page, but it's more than ink. Join us for the next half hour as we explore God's Word together, as we learn how to explore it on our own, as we ask God to meet us there in its pages. Welcome to More Than Ink. Join us today as we talk about the rules for reading the Bible. I don't like rules. Rules? They, I just like makes me want to break them. Okay, let's not do rules. How about uh, join us as we look at general tips for reading the Bible? Eh, tips sounds trivial. Okay, then what would you say? I think principles. General, general, general principles. principles for reading the Bible. Okay, next. Well, welcome back. This is Jim. And this is Dorothy. We are glad that you've returned to us with More Than Ink to talk about uh, the Bible and the fundamentals of reading it and the blessings it is of reading it and how you go about doing that and how you become a, uh, a self-learner in the Bible. So, uh, so we're just glad you're back with us today. We want to focus here sort of at the beginning again on, on, on the fundamentals of Bible exploration. I mean, kind of, it's, it's not all the tips about how to read the Bible, but there's sort of, and I don't want to call them rules, but they're um, approaches that we use that are just really valuable and, uh, and we want to cover those because these, these uh, different um, rules, what's a better word for rules? Principles. Principles. Oh, there we go. Basic principles. Basic principles. These will come back over and over and over and over and over again as we look at passages as the weeks go on. So, so we wanted to cover them here so you'll understand them a little bit and then we'll point them out as we go on. We'll use some examples today as well. So, um, so let's start with this. And this is probably the biggest issue when it comes to people reading the Bible and doing it poorly. <laughs> Is, is a you know you've heard people snatch a little verse uh, and then just wave that little verse around it's like eight words and and act like that's the be all end all of everything in terms of knowledge and you've missed the context. So context is a, just a gigantic issue when you're reading the Bible. Wait, what's the general issues about context? What's the problem if we don't well, do it? Well, we don't read very well. You know, we kind of zoom in on the words that we like or the words that intrigue us or the words that get our attention, and then we kind of yank those out and fix on those. Right, and you can define it to be almost anything you want at that point, Right. Too. Yeah, and that's, that's a tremendous problem, just a tremendous problem. It, it also, it's encouraged by the fact that people take verses like that um, out of context, we call it, and you can you can give them to someone else, and they spread like wildfire, including the interpretation of it, without really knowing where it comes from. Yeah, and then people say, "Well, the Bible says this." Exactly, and we'll, we'll give you probably the the num- Bible says lots of stuff that <laughs> isn't necessarily what God has to say. Yeah, and you can take anything <laughs> I say out of context and make me mean anything you want it to mean. So, to be fair, you really have to watch the context about these things. Verses aren't bad, but just make sure you understand the flow of what's going on. Great example, probably the most abused example ever in the world of this is uh, when people quote to you and they say, well, doesn't the Bible say, you know, judge not that ye be not judged? Doesn't it say that? You shouldn't judge. <laughs> so stop judging me. And, and, and is that a fair interpretation of what that verse is talking about? That comes off, that comes out of uh, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I'm studying the Sermon on the Mount right now. So you hear a lot of examples from that. But that one is so used. Whenever we have an opinion about what's right and wrong, uh, especially as is embodied in a person, people say, well, Bible, the Bible says, don't judge or you'll be judged. So is this really uh, a pejorative against judging at all? 
Yeah, the problem comes with the way we use the word judge, right? right? Because right. in English, we're kind of poverty stricken and we use judge in a lot of different ways. But the Bible has a lot of uh, different layers of meaning to the term judge. It yeah, can mean appraise, it can mean discern, it can mean evaluate, apply some thought to, but it can also mean to render a judicial verdict. Yeah, like a condemnation. Right. Yeah. And that's the that's the distinction there. I mean, the context in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is talking about hypocrisy. Exactly. And pasting a label on someone else that you are unwilling to apply to yourself. Yeah. So, so how do you fix that problem? <laughs> well, that's that's Matthew 7, verse 1. If you just read down to verse 5, just four verses later, he after he talks about some of the problems with the hypocrisy and judging and stuff like that, he actually does recommend that we help other people through our judgment. Uh, it, it's actually endorsed at the end of that. When you get down to verse 5, he says, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the section is how you do it not so much whether you should or not. Yeah, and first, you know, seeing clearly is the issue. First Corinthians 2 speaks about having the mind of Christ. Jim and I didn't talk about this ahead of time, but, you know, Paul says in that passage, uh, I don't have it right in front of me, that there's nothing that we cannot apply the mind of Christ to, that when we have the Spirit in us directing our minds, we can appraise all things. We can apply judgment, Spirit-led judgment, discernment to yeah, everything yeah. and anything. Yeah, we're not supposed to be naive. That's right. And dumb and roll over anything. Yeah, I think so. clearly according to what God thinks. Exactly, exactly. So that's that's it. So that's a good example of context issues. So again, if you're if you're venturing into reading the Bible now because you're thinking about this, just make sure you read sections, read, read around it. And we always recommend, okay, so you got a favorite verse someone passed to you, you know, read some before and some after. Read like 10 verses before and 10 verses after. I mean, it's not a lot. We're talking about one or two paragraphs. Mm -hmm. So get the gist of what's going on. Well, sometimes it does require even a little a little broader reading like who is yeah. who's talking who are they saying it well, to well i was recommending the minimum okay. context <laughs> <laughs> so just don't go to the single verse syndrome because that's that's usually deadly because people can twist a verse to mean whatever they want unless you see the context let's move on to the next kind of Principle, not tip, principle. <laughs> okay, so that, that relates to observation, which exactly. is closely connected to context, right? Where are we? Who is speaking to who? What are the details? Uh, what does the text actually say? And we had something come up real interestingly uh, just recently that Jim and I were realizing, oh, there's a little word in a passage that we are very familiar with that we really hadn't emphasized right. before so sometimes you just have to slow down and observe very and the carefully. word has always been there the word has always <laughs> been there do you want to pull up the passage yeah well it's again it's on sermon on the mount it's in matthew 7 again and you've heard this thing about you know the narrow way and the broad way and people talk about that all the time or a narrow path and a broad path and and uh, and that whole concept is twisted to mean just about anything that you want you know, so if, if the narrow path is not doing something, the broad path is, you can twist it to that. But when you read the passage and the more dominant word in there is not the path or the way, it's the gate. The gate. It's the gate. And he starts by saying, enter by the narrow gate. This is Matthew seven thirteen, And so, so, you know, you pass by that and you just don't think about, well, the gate's not the big issue here. The path is. The path is. Because he says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So we always talk about the way. But what's the gate about? And when you look about it, you think, well, 
I'm not just going to pass over that. What is what when, when Jesus says gate? What did people think of in their minds? And uh, and if you've ever been to Israel, you know anything about archaeology? You know that the cities were all walled with big stone walls, and they had they had limited numbers of entries into and out of the city, and they were called gates. <laughs> yeah, and the point of a gate is to limit access, to, limit to control access. access. Yeah. So when Jesus talks about a gate, he's talking about a place of limited access, of deliberate limited access. And the narrower the gate, the easier it was to defend. So the more restrictive, the narrower the gate. So when he says enter by the narrow gate, he's saying enter by the very restrictive way. There's a very restrictive way that's that's going on. And, and later in the passage, he says that restrictive way is, is uh, keeping people out of the city, which is called life. And so when you look at this, the gate as a restrictive device, rather than the path itself that leads to the gate, your whole interpretation shifts. And that's just because you slow down and you observe, hey, there's gates in here and I've never thought about that before. Yeah, and we're not talking about a, a sweet little white picket fence gate. We're talking about a defended, yeah. a defended access point that right. there's only one way in, which once that dawns on you, you realize, oh my gosh, Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. You yeah. got to come in and go out through me. Right. Right. So this path in life eventually leads to a destination, which is that gate. And that gate is engineered by God to be a deliberately restrictive passage. And uh, he's talking about judgment at the end of life and few will actually pass through it. So so go back and read the passage. But I think it was just a uh, it was an astonishing thing to me that it, when we talk about observation, I'd read that word gate a gazillion times and it just never dawned on me. <laughs> What was being implied? But to people who heard Jesus speak this, they knew exactly what it was talking about. They knew what about, a city gate because they had like. a city gate right in front of them. Right. So right. So that's observation. You got to slow down and just notice what's there. Notice the details. Notice the words that are chosen. Uh, notice if those words are repeated. Right. Uh, or a repeated idea, because sometimes the scripture will say something one way and then restate it in the next sentence in other words or a paragraph later and the yeah. poetic books actually are famous for this that's the way they're structured they rhyme thoughts or concepts rather than rhyming words like we do in our poetry exactly uh, yeah. in in middle eastern poetry they rhyme thoughts they rhyme concepts so yeah. we've got pairs of statements that say yeah. the same thing from a different point of view and the more you read that that literature, you recognize it. It's pretty common. So we watch in observation. We look for repeated words. We look for details. We look for um, who is speaking to who, who is the intended audience, who is speaking. <laughs> right. Um, Just obvious stuff, mm -hmm. but we tend to gloss over it. Well, and as I said before, we when we read, sometimes we just fix on the things that attract our attention. We're drawn to the shiny stuff yeah, instead yeah. of seeing what's really there. It's kind of you can't see the forest for the trees kind it's, of thing. Exactly. Well, that's a good segue into the issues of uh, mixing Old Testament and New Testament. So why is that important? Well, we can't really understand the New Testament unless we understand the Old Testament, because the context is the New Testament comes on the heels of the Old Testament. Well, and the right? people speaking in the New Testament were mired in the Old Testament. They That's right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, two passages actually came to mind when I was thinking about this. And, and the first one actually is John 3.16. And we referenced this yesterday. But the, the verse before and the verse after are so important. Jesus says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then he says, for God so loved the world, right? We know that part. But then we go to verse 17, for God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world or to render a verdict right now. Right but that the world should be saved through him. Well, what he's referencing there is clear back in Numbers 21. If you remember that incident in the wilderness when the people were complaining and the Lord sent fiery serpents among them that bit them. That's right. And then he says to Moses, now take an image, make an image of the serpent in bronze and put it up on a pole and stand it up in the middle of the people so that when they look at it, they can be saved. They They will die from the bite. It doesn't say they stopped getting bitten. Right. What it says is they won't die from the bite if they look to the serpent on the pole. So Jesus takes that image that would have been very, very familiar to Nicodemus, who he was talking to in that conversation, Mm -hmm. and says, just like that, that's how the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Yeah. And so unless we're familiar with and that, that story. That would be a natural connection to his hearers. Right. It would have immediately, the yeah. peg would have dropped in the hole for Nicodemus. But for us, it's like, where what? the heck did that come from? <laughs> so we need to read our Old Testament alongside the New Testament. When you find in your New Testament reading that there is an Old Testament reference, you need to chase it down. Yeah chase it down and, and that's you know it's one of the things we talk about about tools for study too if you have a bible that has a reference section you know either down the center column or side columns or something like that they'll usually have these passages uh, and it'll have a little flag and say go look back here in exodus and if you go look you go oh hey look at that so you don't have to be a total bible scholar to know those connections the references in your columns in your bible will lead you to those Okay, but even if you don't have a a reference, anytime Moses is mentioned, you can pretty well thumb back to Exodus Exodus. and (laughs) Exodus or Deuteronomy and find with a little little thumb work and a little searching uh, what's being talked about. Exactly. Well, let's move on. So we talked about context, read larger sections about observation. Oh, there's so much more. I know, there's just tons. <laughs> observation, just notice what's there and quit reading over stuff. Old Testament, absolutely valuable. Um, another one that we talk about is using the Bible to interpret the Bible. So, for instance, if I pull a verse out of context, which he said is bad, and I and I interpret it in a way that's, that's inconsistent with what the rest of Scripture teaches, then maybe my my you know interpretation's wrong. Oh, so, that's so important. So is you really have to, have to use the Bible to help interpret the Bible, and there's no way to to groom that facility unless you just read a lot of Bible. You know, and you make those connections so that you're not you're not coming to conclusions that are at odds. And the reason philosophically this this should work is because God it says breathed into all the Scripture. So if God is the ultimate author through all of these different men, then they should have the same message, should have the same interpretation. So you can do that. Just a really good example, and this fits our culture a lot, is about the the priest Melchizedek. And Melchizedek has taught a lot in our culture here. And um, uh, so, and if you read, if you read through the Bible, you'll find Melchizedek is mentioned a ton in the book of Hebrews, at least eight times in chapters five, six, and a lot in seven. And the writer, the writer of Hebrews is trying to make a point about the nature of Jesus as our high priest and as a priest like Melchizedek. Well, so then 
you, you could go off in crazy directions and talk about Melchizedek this and Melchizedek that. Make stuff up. And just, just make stuff up. Yeah. Well, you know what? You can find Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He's in Genesis 14. And now uh, where he has this interesting encounter with Abraham. So that's way back in Abraham time. So to, to keep you from misinterpreting in the New Testament who Melchizedek is and what that means about who Jesus is, our priest is, well, hey, let's use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Let's go back to Genesis 14 and just find out who Melchizedek is. And it's, it's really his only cameo appearance in the entire Bible is back there in Genesis 14. Actually, I just did this with a friend just a couple of weeks ago, a friend who grew up in the dominant culture here. And she said, you know, what is this? Melchizedek. What is this about him? Is he a real guy? And so we went back to mm-hmm. that passage and just read it. I didn't, we didn't just even read it. study it. We just read it. And <laughs> yeah. she's like, oh, oh, that's all new to me. Yeah, so. And then suddenly a lot of the mythology that she had grown up with just evaporated in Keeps those moments. Keeps you from going off the rails. Yeah. And, and then there's actually one other place in the Old Testament where it's mentioned it's in Psalms. And in Psalms 110 mentions Melchizedek and really paints the connection between the real person Melchizedek over in Genesis 14 with what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in terms of a type to talk about who Jesus is. And Psalm 110 is all about the Messiah, Jesus. So Okay, we need to talk about types maybe in another conversation yeah. because yeah. that is a huge, important concept to understand. Yeah, but exactly. we won't do it right now. Yeah, don't have much time. Well, let's move on to another. Since Melchizedek was a real person... We have to realize that the Bible is in the context of real people in real time, in real culture, and that changes how we kind of mystify the Bible. These are real people, right? Yeah, we have real people in real families relating to one another in a real way. These are not made up people or idealized people. Uh, We have, you know, accounts of deeply dysfunctional families. Uh, For instance, King David's family. Uh, all of his children, many, I won't say all, many of many, his children a lot were of them. deeply troubled. He was yeah. not apparently such a good father. And, you know, one of his sons attempted to seize the kingdom and led an insurrection. Another of his sons raped his half-sister. There was oh, tragedy was really and bad. sorrow in that family. Uh, and the Bible recounts these things unflinchingly. I've been reading um, Lamentations and Habakkuk and Zephaniah in preparation oh, yeah. for something else. And, you know, Lamentations talks about um, uh, the total destruction of Jerusalem and the sorrow and the, uh, everything from cannibalism to what people are like who are dying of starvation. I mean, these are very real accounts of real people going through real circumstances yeah yeah and you know it it seems like an obvious point to make but the problem is is that many times when people approach the bible they think it's kind of a it's kind of a a, uh, i don't hate using the word magic but well it's a mythology (laughs) yeah that that you pull out these little tidbits and it it doesn't necessarily have to be anything about real people but it is real people and it it, is real people and god's trying to give us an understanding of who he is in the context of how he of how he interacted with real people during real times so there's a there's a vast amount of sinfulness that's yeah. mentioned in the old testament and the new of yeah, people doing wrong stuff real people in their real brokenness exactly and so you don't want to look at that brokenness and say look it's mentioned in the bible so it's okay uh, right and polygamy is a, is a case polygamy in point because is we run into that one. a lot yeah just because lot. it is mentioned and described and because it was an active part of of a number of the lives of people in the Old Testament. Right, right. Some of our local culture point to that and say, look, God must have commanded it. 
Well, no, not so much. (laughs) And in fact, if you just want to do an honest observation to find out, you know, when you see polygamy in the Old Testament, just look at it and ask yourself, does this look like these worked out well? That's right. There is no account where it turned out well. (laughs) So there's no account where you'd read those and go, well, that's a good idea. Look how it worked out for them because it didn't work out well for them. So, so again, these are real people and polygamy is not something God commanded. In fact, it's, it's something that God commands against, especially when he talks about rulers. So, you know, it's just not a good deal. And and when he when you go to Genesis 2 God doesn't give Adam two wives so you know you, you just got to look at what's there and realize these are real people many of them doing really stupid things well or polygamy being accepted in that culture at that time God acknowledges right. it and accounts for it but does not endorse it right and people will say well if it was bad God would have condemned it and he would have judged them for it and I say well, well no you're doing a lot of stuff today that's wrong and God's not taking you out right now okay so, but actually he did he said but he know, did that's right. kings should not be taking yeah, multiple wives that's right. no one should be taking multiple yeah. wives so yeah and in the New Testament again leaders should be you know a one woman people is what it basically says so well, let's segue to the last section about just general reading tips, because we want you to go out and read the Bible. We really do. And there's a, a couple of more reading ideas, principles about that. And uh, why, why don't you start with the first thought on that? Well, I I just can't emphasize reading enough. Read, 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 and then read some more. We are a people who like to read sound bites and reduce things to little headlines. Right. But the Bible is one book and it's a huge story and we need to read often and read completely like whole sentences, whole paragraphs, whole letters, read widely, read repeatedly. How many times have you come to the end of a page in anything you're reading, not just the Bible and realized uh, uh, my eyes were reading those words and somewhere in my brain they were being accounted for, but I was actually thinking about something else. Exactly. And I have to go back to the top and start over. But then you again. kind of do this thing when you say, but I get credit for the fact right. that I read it. I can check that off. I but read it, my but chapter. But my brain wasn't engaged. Right. Yeah. So read with your mind engaged. And that probably means slow down. Yeah, in large measure it does. And to, and to be inquisitive as you're reading. You know, basically sit down and say, well, God, what have you got for me? Let's just take a look here and see. In fact, one of the things I, I recommend to people a lot when they're reading is, is that there's there's advantages to both reading large sections quickly as well as small sections slowly. And we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when you get the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, very famously, the Beatitudes are at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 starts in verse 3. And he says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he doesn't say anything else about what the heck that means. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to sit there and you need, just need to dwell on that for a while and work through the words and, and just sit on that and meditate and ask God, well, what does that mean? And, and when you get deeper into the idea of what being poor in spirit is all about, you realize that this, that's the condition we are all in before we come to Christ. So it's, it's an interesting thing. You need to be slow there. You don't just need to rip through the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, that's wrong. But for me, you know, if I get to a narrative, which is which is just a true story being told, uh, like one of my favorite narratives in Judges 4 and 5 is Deborah. Just a great, great story. I, just an incredible story. Well, I'm not going to dwell on a verse for an hour and a half because it's a story. It's storytelling. So, you know, be discerning and see what's there and understand that you need to take two different speeds and two different breaths. Continue to stay in context. But I, I remember one time, in fact, uh, when Dorothy was working um, 
at uh, at the Pancake House. Oh golly, that was a long time ago. <laughs> long time ago, fifty and you, years. And you close the restaurant like at one or two in the morning, and I would come and just sit there and watch as all the customers were doing the way, and I'd wait for you to finish work. I remember one time I went with my little pocket Bible, and I decided, well, I'm sitting here in this booth all alone. I'm going to read all of Romans in one sitting. I'd never done that before, and uh, I read Romans in one sitting, and I was blown away. I mean, I was just, I was just amazed. This isn't just a little collection of little tidbits that are strung together. This is a gigantic single thought. So again, even though there's small sections in Romans I want to dwell on because they they deserve that, also forcing yourself to go to a large picture, reading the whole thing, is really extraordinarily valuable. That is hugely important. I think we underestimate how much we can gain by just reading a large portion all at once. And I, you know. Uh, ran across a funny quote. I think it was Mark Twain that said it. Said, you know, when it comes to the Bible, it's not what I don't understand that bothers me. It's the parts that I do understand. You're right. And sometimes we <laughs> we can gain a lot more understanding than we think we can by simply reading for the big picture. Exactly. Read the whole book. It's not going to take you as long as you think. And if something trips you because you don't understand it sometimes, well, just let it go for a while and come back to it. Sometimes it's better just to keep and, and, and gain the bigger picture, even if you haven't got the whole thing debugged. So I'll give you an example of this. We took a trip to Israel a few years ago that was a geographical history tour. And the first thing we did, every time we got off the bus, our teacher would say, now, look around at the horizon. What can you see from here that you know we've been there before? And how does it relate to where we are now? So when we come to read the scriptures, I've come to apply that that way. If I look Mm. at the horizon, what can I see from here that I've seen before? Where am I in the bigger context? And you'll be amazed at how many dots begin to connect right that way if you right. read for the big picture right so so read for the big picture just dive into it and, and do it and if something snags you go i don't know what that means make a note go back to it later but keep going sometimes that's a much better way to do that that was clearly this case when i read romans way back in 1972 <laughs> i think or three. that was i read it again yeah read it again right so, I make a habit of this, reading a whole book, and then as soon as I get to the end, go back and read it again, and because it again. it's amazing what comes off the page the second time. Yeah, or if I actually drill down on specific verses and study them for a while, which is kind of time-consuming, then when I get done with that, I think, I want to go back and read the whole thing now that I have more understanding on the specific verses and read the whole thing you know, as a big flyover. It's just, it's just a remarkable way to do it, and it's not a waste of time. You know? So we are like out of time. We're out of time again. But Nuts. we've talked about context a little bit. We've talked about observation. We've talked about connecting your Old Testament with your New Testament. We've talked about letting the Bible interpret itself uh, and reading big and little. Right, right. Read with your mind open toward the Spirit of God. So before we come back next time, we hope you do a little bit of reading yourself. And, uh, And we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. More Than Ink is a production of Main Street Church of Brigham City and is solely responsible for its content. To contact us with your questions or comments, just go to our website, morethaninc.org. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Mm